If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations once again, Lamentations chapter 3. Father, it has been our privilege this morning so far to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, to come together because of him, because of all that he's done for us, because of who he is, to give him the honor, the glory, and the worship that he so rightly deserves. We are here, Father, because we have been adopted by your grace and kindness, and we have been considered your children, at least for those of us, Father, who have place their faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, in our desire to worship you, Father, we we also have a great hunger for your presence in our life. We hunger to know you, to know your word. We desire, Father, to be strengthened by your word. We need to be encouraged by what your word says. And Father, we may continue to live the life you've called us to live. We know, Lord, that the life you've called us to live at times can can be hard. Sometimes difficult, at times lonely. And Father, we know that you meet our needs. You meet our needs through your people. You meet our needs by your presence. You meet our needs by your word, by your spirit. And we thank you for that. So Father, we ask that you would raise our awareness of your presence in our life. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened by your word today. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when he is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he, cause, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it, come, and it came to pass? unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Keep in mind as we read through that, that Jeremiah is with the Israelites in the midst of Jerusalem going through all of the horrendous things that we have been describing over the past six weeks, save for Easter. Let me begin by telling you a story. This is an excerpt from the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. 
Aslan is a lion which represents the Lord. And it reads this way. Aslan is the rightful king and the ruler of Narnia. And he is not to be trifled with. Aslan, they are unsure what to think. Should they be afraid? Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, said Susan. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver, braver than most or else just silly, said Mrs. Beaver. Then Lucy said, then he isn't safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Sometimes when we think about the Lord, we need to be reminded of the majesty and the greatness of who God is. And as it is described here in this story, then in a sense, as far as we see safety, he's not safe. However, he is good. And I think that is what Jeremiah is locking in on here in this passage. In this section that we read, it provides a transition from stating the extreme hardships of the past to confessing God's faithfulness as a beginning for a new season for himself and for all who will agree with his conclusions. So in verse 20 and 21 again, he says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I want to read you a quote from a, a, a Puritan pastor. I don't have his name. But this is the way that it reads. As long as we contemplate our troubles, the more convinced we will become of our isolation, our hopelessness, our inability to extricate ourselves from the present trouble. But when we focus on the Lord, we are able finally to rise above rather than to suffer under our troubles. And that is what Jeremiah wants these individuals to recognize. In all of this, as we have been describing the pain, the despair, and all of the details of the suffering they're going through, not only does Jeremiah not advocate a blaming of God or turning on God, but a turning to God and remembering that even in the midst of all of this, none of this negates that God is faithful and that God is loving. And that God is kind. Verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It requires a great deal of faith, also knowledge to say that. Because again, as he looks around, there is no evidence of that in one sense. In fact, he says his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, let me just remind you of one thing before I explain, really, for the believer what we are to get from this. When it says that his mercies never come to an end, that is true only for the believer. For the non-believer, that is not true. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not committed your life to him, confessing your sin and receiving his forgiveness, then there is an end to God's mercy in this life. 
and there is a judgment, and you will pay for every single sin you have committed, every single sin that you have committed in your mind and in your heart, and there is no escape. For the non-believer, there is no hope of escape, ever, none. And I want to, I want to, in a sense, reassure you of that truth, because sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that because I'm in church, all of this applies to me. Because I believe that God exists, all of this applies to me. Because I acknowledge, because I know in history that Jesus did die, all of this is true for me. It's not. It's true for those who have been adopted as children of God. And as John chapter 1 verse 12 says, who are those who are the children of God? Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are believers, Jeremiah's condition pushed him to despair. As I've mentioned before, one of the reasons why I think that, we, that all this detail has been given to us is so that we don't kind of smooth over the real pain and agony that A, some people can suffer and we ourselves might suffer one day. Where it appears that that is all there is. So there is the temptation to be overwhelmed. Maybe a weakness to be overwhelmed with our situation. And so Jeremiah, after describing the conditions that he is experiencing, he is pushed to despair. Remember, he sees the young and the strong dead. He sees babies passing out and dying because of hunger. He sees this army that there is no other army around Israel that can defeat them because Israel's army has either run away in fear or has been decimated. And the other armies they were hoping to come and spare them have already been defeated by the Babylonian army. He doesn't see a tomorrow that's different than today. He doesn't see a next Monday as being different from today. And so the despair is very real. However, even though he is pushed to despair, one thought crowded out the hopelessness that threatened to overwhelm him. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions, the Lord's compassion for us never fails. Judah was down and not out. God was punishing Judah for her sin but he did not reject her as his covenant people. The word for steadfast love here in the Hebrew language is the Hebrew word hesed. Now, we could have an entire sermon or two on the meaning of that word. It is a great word. But in short, hesed is the idea of a loyal love. It is a loyal, it's a, there's a commitment to it. It's a very strong word that is used here. God was sticking by the people he had chosen. The covenant that he made with Israel in Deuteronomy 28 had not been abrogated. In fact, God's loyal love could be seen in his faithfulness in carrying out the curses he had promised while at the same time preserving a remnant. So the question would be, could Judah push God so far that he would finally abandon her forever? The answer is no. Was God's supply of loyal love and compassion limited? The answer is no. No matter what it is that we are going through, no matter what kind of difficulty we are experiencing, or multiple difficulties, and even if it involves your sinful choices, can you ever put yourself in a position that God would abandon you forever? No. 
Can you put yourself in a position where God's supply of loyal love and compassion for you be used up? No, it can't be. In fact, God's mercies or his loving kindness or kindnesses are new every morning. That means that God is offering a fresh supply of loyal love every day to his covenant people. It's the kind of way that we're supposed to love each other as husband and wife. In one sense, every day, every morning we wake up, there's a new commitment of loyal love to that individual. We are are choosing to love that person completely every day. And you repeat that every day until you die. Much like the manna in the wilderness, the supply could not be exhausted. This truth caused Jeremiah to call out in praise. In fact, he was taken back by the limitlessness or the limitless supply of God's grace that was offered to him. Because of this, Jeremiah resolved to wait for God, wait for God to act, to bring about restoration and blessing. He could trust God despite his circumstances because he understood how inexhaustible God's supply of loyal love was. It's actually amazing. No matter how, how bad it was, and no matter how hopeless it seemed in a human way, he had an absolute trust in God, that God is faithful. And here's the thing that we need to remember. We sometimes say it this way, that God is faithful to us. And that's not incorrect, but it's not the most accurate. God is faithful to himself. And what we need to remember is that is a tremendous benefit to us. See, because God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his love for us. And because he doesn't change, we can have great confidence in him. Remember Jesus' words. He's he's told us that he would never leave us alone. He would never abandon us. There may be times we feel like he's abandoned us. But our feelings, you know, can be wrong. That's what living by faith is, what we trust, what God says. So that's why sometimes we have to remind ourselves, it's good self-talk, to remind ourselves that God is faithful, that there's truth in that, there's strength in that, that's real. And there's evidence of that in the Bible and in our lives and the lives of others, that God is faithful. Remember that, This life, again, is not all there is. If I get cancer and I ask God for healing and God says no and I die in cancer, God has not failed. He will usher me home to be with him. There's truth in that. We need to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to only set our eyes only on the here and now. And again, that is not just some kind of made-up thing to help us to kind of just get through the difficult times in life as some kind of a manipulative psychological ploy to trick us. That's not what that is. That's a living reality. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about. In fact, he uses a phrase, and I think you should ask yourself this phrase, because sometimes, you know, we may sing about this, we we have read this, we have heard people say this, but what does the phrase mean, the Lord is my portion? The Lord is my portion. What does that mean? Turn to Numbers chapter 18. Look at verse 20. Now, just so you know, in Numbers 18, what's going on is uh, in this, this large section, God is allocating 
to the various tribes of Israel the land they're going to inherit. And this land is going to provide for them. It's going to provide uh, pasture for their sheep, land for them to live on, land for them to grow their food. I mean, it's very, very important. And they all need to make sure they have a, a, the, the correct portion to support their families and their people so they will not die of hunger and they, they won't experience starvation. They'll have a place to live, a place they can call their own. But when it comes to the Levites, he doesn't give them any land. It says, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. What he's telling Aaron is that he and uh, his people, they're not going to get any of these things that have been given to the rest of Israel. But then he says this, I'm your portion. I'm the one that's going to provide for you a place to live and food to eat and water to drink, etc., etc. You don't need all those things. I'm going to take care of you. A paraphrase of that passage reads this way. And the Lord said to Aaron, you, you priests will receive no allotment of land or share of property among the people of Israel. I am your share and your allotment. So Jehovah God is saying that he will be to the tribe of Levi what the other tribes receive in their territorial possessions in Canaan. Levi shall have his possession and enjoyment in Yahweh. And so one of the most, and so that is an incredible statement. So when you, when you come across that phrase, or you hear that phrase, the Lord is my portion, then you need to remember that, that's what that's about. That's what that's speaking about. So I may not have money, lands, and houses. I may not have medical insurance or retirement or whatever happens. I may not have those things. But the Lord is my portion. The Lord is going to take care of me. You do know that most of the world does not experience or does not have medical insurance. They don't have that. Most of the world does not have retirement. They don't have that. There are millions of Christians around the world that have nothing like that to fall back on. They have no safety net, but they have the Lord. That's all that they need. You see, one of the most extraordinary teachings in the Old Testament is all the Israel sinned against God through idolatry, immorality, oppression, and various forms of what we would call long-term covenant adultery to such an extent that finally God punished them severely. The Lord was still willing to start over with repentant Israelites. God had determined to bless and heal, and to, for God's determination to bless and heal is as thorough and as unusual as his determination to punish, if not more so. The road back to this covenantal relationship may well be long and difficult, especially given the level of sin and the depth of punishment. Nonetheless, it is possible to begin. The Lord was not going to abandon them completely. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And regardless of what you are going through or may go through, God will not abandon you. That's why the warning is that we should not be like the world. Do not think like the world. The world puts no hope in God. While things are going well for you, or maybe at least relatively well, read the word, know the word, grow in your relationship with God. So then when these times of difficulty come, 
you won't have to feel like you have to reintroduce yourself to God because you don't know who he is. We will be able to, in a sense, walk through it. Not that it will be easy, but it will be easier because we know that God truly has our back, that God is with us in that. Here's the thing to think about. There's several things, I think, here to think about. This is one of them. Not only is it true that God will not change in his faithfulness, he cannot change. There's certain things God cannot do. God cannot be unfaithful to himself. He can't. God is incapable of being faithless to himself. That is our God. That is the strength and the permanence of our God. He never cools off in his commitment to us. He never breaks a promise or loses enthusiasm. We even know in, in what, what some people have described when they, when, they, when they talk about their long marriages, people may say that there were times when they felt like they didn't love their spouse or they went through difficult times. But when it comes to God, his commitment to you and me never cools off. It never changes regardless of what we do. The closest I think I can come to is when it comes to the way that we love our children or our grandchildren. I've asked you to think about this before. What could your child or your grandchild do that would cause you to stop loving them? I don't think there is anything. If my children or grandchildren said to me they hated me and did not want me to be a part of their life, I would experience great pain. But if you were to ask me, do you love them? Absolutely. We might even say we can't help ourselves. And that, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. God loves you more than you love your children or your grandchildren. He loves you more than that. God stays near us when we reject his counsel. God stays near us when we deliberately disobey him. Just as much as when we are zealous for the truth. God remains intimately involved in our lives whether we are giving him praise in prayer or grieving him with our actions, whether we are running from him or to him, he remains faithful. His faithfulness is unconditional. It is unending and unswerving. Nothing we do can diminish it. And nothing we stop doing can increase it. It remains great. Even when you blow it, even when you make a stupid decision, even when your world is shaken by betrayal, God's faithfulness never diminishes. Not about you, but I know that I have failed. I know I've made stupid decisions. My world has been shaken before by various things. God's faithfulness is never, God's greatness has never been diminished in any of that. He is always there. In the midst of your difficulties, you don't have to try to find another individual you don't have like if you're in the midst of the of the greatest catastrophe in your life you as a believer you don't have to say oh I've got to try to find a way somehow to get a hold of the elders at the church so they can pray for me now it's good you want us to pray for you we don't have to wait for that you don't have to think if I can just get them to pray no you can go straight to God because of Christ God is an ever-present help to us we can boldly approach the throne of grace God did not say you can boldly approach the throne of grace if you contact your elders. He didn't say your elders can approach the throne of grace, but you can't. He's not said any of that. God is there. 
that Jeremiah wants us to understand. He wants to give us some advice on how to handle suffering. We, we covered a few things last week. There's a little more here. And basically, let me begin with this. Those who wait for the Lord and seek Him eventually experience His goodness. Waiting on the Lord is not just hanging on. It's not just hanging on and complaining all the while until good comes. No, waiting on the Lord is you remaining faithful in living as a believer in honoring Him while you're waiting. You, you know, when we watch movies or read love stories... You, you never think of a, a great love story as being, let's say the man says to his wife, you know, you were, I know you've been missing for seven years, and I've been looking for you for seven years, and even though I've had several women since you were gone, I never gave up hope. We would not consider that to be a great love story. We would say, what a scumbag. Right? That's what we would say. But here, when it comes to, to God, waiting for the Lord then is not you and I, then living as if we don't even know who God is. We're living in faithfulness to him. Verse 25 and 26 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I don't, mean, I don't think that means you can't sing praises to the Lord, but I definitely think it doesn't mean you can complain about your situation or circumstances. We don't complain. We don't chronically complain. Maybe I should put it that way. Because sometimes we, we get this idea that we can never say anything negative. Hey, you can say things that are negative. You absolutely can complain about your condition. Just don't make that the habit of your life. Once you've made the statement, then you leave it. Right? Because after a while, you're complaining really about God. The idea is, is that we are to wait quietly because we, we, we are looking forward to. We are, there's a sense of expectation. The Lord's going to come through. I don't know how, and I don't know in what way. But I know that he will. Another thing to think about, and we get this again from the Old Testament in many places as well as the New, God gets no pleasure from inflicting pain on people. He gets no pleasure from that. His judgments are not the way he wants to relate to humanity, but are his response to human sin. Punishment then, and I've never thought of it this way. This is not unique with me, but it made me think a great deal. When it comes to God and punishment, punishment is an alien work of God given reluctantly after numerous warnings. I mean, how many times did he warn Israel before he lowered the boom? It, we get tired, and we're not the ones that are being sinned against. It's unbelievable. God is stubborn that way grateful. In fact, when it comes to verses um, 31 through 33, many have said that when they do all their mathematical calculations of the book of Lamentations, that those three verses are right smack in the middle of this book. In the very middle of this book is the appreciation of the God of Israel, Yahweh, as being the ground of hope. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. So even if you are being punished for your sins, if you are experiencing the consequences of your sinful decisions, the bottom line is the Lord will not cast off forever. You will feel like you're being cast off. God is disciplining you absolutely. He has not cast you off forever. But though he caused grief, 
So you see here, Jeremiah is rooted in reality. He is rooted in the very real, painful existence that you and I have right now because of sin. And we go right back to Genesis chapter 3 to understand that, to see the beginning of that. Though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It is not that he might have compassion, and it is not that he'll have compassion according to how many good works you have. That's not what it's based on. It's based on his goodness. I mean, if you think about it, there's a few moments in life when you and I actually act like God. Now, I'm not saying you are God, but you act like God. Have you ever in your life given Christmas presents to your children when they've been disobedient? Of course we have. Do you say at Christmas, you know, since last Christmas, you've been disobedient 29 times. No presents for you. We don't do that. We act as if they've never disobeyed before. When they have a birthday, especially when they're young, and we give them gifts, we don't say, man, it was close. I thought you disobeyed me a few times this year, but I was wrong. And so because you were perfect, you get these gifts. All the stores would go broke if we did that because our kids would never get a gift. Have you ever done something for an individual that maybe they betrayed you in the past and you've done good for them? So this is God all the time. God's compassion for us is according to his goodness. You give these gifts to your children because you love them, not because of how they perform. Now, it is better if they obey. That always makes for a happy home. But the idea is, it's because of our love for them. So because of this, again, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. So Jeremiah is trying to describe for us that it's as if God is forced into this. Not that we can force God to do anything, but in trying to help us to understand God's reluctance in treating us and causing us pain because he loves us so greatly, he feels, in a sense, forced to do this because our learning about holiness, our learning to turn away from evil is of such great importance, this needs to be taken care of. And he needs to, to deal with this issue with, within us. In the same way that, that, you know, there's been times maybe in, in the raising of your children you had to make some really hard decisions because they're not learning. Now, I was, I, I was happy I never had to follow through on this, but I, I told all of my boys when they were playing football that if they did not maintain their grades, I was going to take them off the team. And I, and I, I meant it. They, that, was, that was important. I wanted to play and experience everything because I think football is great. However, that is not more important than this, period. Thank goodness, it was really odd. They actually made better grades during football season. And so the bottom line is, is that God, so here we understand this, this reluctance of God. So remember, God is not this emotional, wishy-washy being that kind of seesaws and is kind of whining about you know, somehow because you, he has to do certain things. But for your benefit, he will do these things. 
He would rather you and I repent and turn, as it says in Ezekiel 18, and turn and live. That's why he has this question. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Why would we complain about that? We justly deserve that. So the attitude that, that Jeremiah wants to see developed in us is, is a mature attitude that takes in all this information, that we understand the reality of life, that when it comes to life, sin is egregious to God. And God is going to deal with sin, and he's going to deal with sin in your life and in my life. He's going to do that. God is going to warn us and give us many opportunities, in a sense, to come clean. He's going to give you many, many of those. In fact, just think about this for a moment. I believe that when you go through the story of Cain and Abel, when Cain murdered his brother, that when God begins the conversation with Cain and asks him where his brother is, that was actually an act of mercy of God giving Cain an opportunity to repent. Of course, Cain wouldn't do it. He was giving him an opportunity. Cain could have fallen to his face and just, I've blown it. What I've done is, inex- I mean, he, could have, he didn't do any of that. None of those things. In fact, early on, before that, when Cain uh, brought his offering to the Lord, where God received his, where he received Abel's but not his, then God came to him and said, why are you, why are you so depressed? Why are you angry? Just do right. Just do right. It'll be okay. And what did Cain do? And what I think is important is when you read that passage, there's a gap between the two verses. It's, it's called white space on the page. It, it represents what Cain did. Nothing. And because he did nothing, whatever that desire was that grew into anger towards his brother that led him to, to murder him. But God had given him an opportunity to, to fix that before it got to that point. And then when when um, God says to him that your brother's blood cries out from the ground, Cain could have still repented, and he didn't. And even then, God was merciful, even in his punishment of him. And so we need to remember that. And so, for you and for me, we have many, many, many opportunities to repent. And we, we need to do that. We must do that. You should want to do that. So when it comes to the point then to where we begin to maybe experience the consequences or maybe more directly the disciplines of God because of the wrong that we've done, God is not lowering the boom just out of the blue. We've had opportunities. But even in the midst of that, God is being merciful to you and to me and giving us opportunity to repent. In the midst of this, Israel could have repented. Eventually they do. And so here we, have, we need to begin with this mature stance that we recognize that sin is egregious, that sin is serious, that it's against God, that God's going to deal with it, that God wants it out of our life, that we have no right to complain about anything that comes our way, and that if we do experience that, whether we are experiencing the consequences because of the sins of others or our own sins, in the midst of that, the one that we turn to, the one that we remember is God himself. 
that God is faithful, that God is good, and that God is going to, to do good for us, that God intends to do good for us, that God's going to bless us. God's going to help us through that time of difficulty. He is a God of graciousness. He's going to give us his grace so we have his sustaining strength to withstand whatever it is that we're going through. And we will be able to make it to the end. We will. We'll be able to preserve to the end because God will give you and I the strength that we need. We may feel from day to day that we barely have enough strength to survive, but at the same time, we do have enough strength to survive for that day. And then the strength you need to get through tomorrow, God will give that to you tomorrow. And also we need to recognize our role as a church, that when we gather around those who are suffering, we are to, try, we are to bear their burdens, we are to be there for them, we are, to, we are to pray for them. Whatever we can do for them practically, if that's going to help them to bear with these things, we, are, we do that. We become the hands and the feet of God himself to help them, to strengthen them through that time. We don't want to be like the, like the people in the church at Corinth where a man was finally confronted by Paul because he was having a physical relationship with his dad's wife and how abhorrent that is, that they, they kicked this man out of the church and then this man apparently, I believe, repented and he wanted to be restored and there were some of the church who said, yeah, it's not enough, he needs to suffer more. And Paul said, no, 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 no. I've forgiven him, you need to forgive him unless, so that he won't be swallowed up by too much sorrow. So it's not your job or my job to ensure that somebody suffers more or suffers enough. Our job is to do what the scripture commands us to do. And that is that when that person repents, we just, you know what? You believe them, you take them at face value, and we comfort them. And if that, if that repentance turns out to be fake, then we deal with it when that happens. Don't try, to, don't try to read into it, try to figure it out in advance. Just take it at face value. Life's a whole lot easier and simpler that way. In the same way you want someone to believe you, we should believe them. And comfort them and move forward. Because God is about restoration. God is not about you and I exacting our pound of flesh. Because it will never be enough. If someone has betrayed you, you will never be able to get them to suffer enough to satisfy your sense of vengeance. It just won't happen. But if our hearts are filled with the love of God as we grow in our relationship with him we'll be able to forgive to the point that we are fully satisfied as we forgive them. It's amazing how that works. So then, the word to you is this, is that the hope that we have in God is very real. And so we need to trust in the Lord. He will have compassion on us according to the abundance of his steadfast love because his loving kindnesses are new every morning for each and every one of us. And I don't know about you, but I am, a, I am so happy with that. And I am so grateful that that is true because I am undeserving of that every morning. And yet every morning God is there giving to me my days, my daily need for his loving kindnesses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much that you are a God who is a God of hope, that you are a God who does not give up on us, your children. We thank you, Lord, that when you adopted us into your family, that it was permanent and that it was forever. And even though, Father, we can disappoint you and even disobey you, even though you are at times forced to punish us, maybe even severely, you will never abandon us, Father. And for that, we are so grateful. And Father, many of us, maybe we've never experienced it quite to that degree, and we're grateful for that as well. We pray, Lord, that whatever it is that we are going through, whether it's physical sickness or some kind of a, uh, the consequence of maybe someone else's sinful decisions, maybe a combination of theirs and ours, 
Whatever it is, Father, we pray that we would recognize that the way that we handle the suffering and the pain and the difficulty that we go through is to always turn to you and to seek you to know that, and know that good will come. So, Father, help us in the most difficult thing, which is to trust you when we do not see, humanly speaking, a ray of hope. But to know, Lord, that because we know you, there's not a ray of hope. There is hope because you are alive forevermore and you will never abandon us. So, Father, we can never thank you enough for being so good to us and so great. And, Father, I do ask that with maybe a, a little better of an understanding of your greatness and your loyal love to us, help us, Father, to be able to express to others, to live out a highly committed, loyal love to each other. That, Father, we may show the world the greatness of who you are. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.